Welcome to Kindreds, a podcast for soul sisters. I'm Ashley Peterson. And I'm Katie Zay. We're kindred spirits talking all things faith, feminism, and friendship from our homes in the South. Hey, Ashley. Hey, Katie. How's it going? What's new in your world? It's good. Last week was my birthday. Oh, happy birthday. Thanks. Yeah, we're like really close in in birthdays over here. It's true. You and I. Fellow cancer. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like this cancer season is real. There's a couple of eclipses. I don't know if you follow astrology, but... uh, I want to more closely, so I will glean anything that you have to share about it. (laughs) Basically, the eclipses in cancer mean that it's just rough. It's a little emotionally rocky. crying so much? I think it might be. (laughs) You can totally just blame the stars. Okay. Yes, or just the world, but... That's it's comforting to know that maybe there are others feeling the same way. Yeah, and Mercury is in retrograde, whatever that means. So that's apparently part of it too. So I don't know. Yeah, I think it's there's a little bit of uh, astrological turmoil right now. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, for what's going on within me and in the world? Yeah. So how are things on your end? I am looking forward to a solo weekend with Sam. Matt is going to the lake, and so Sam and I are going to get pizza and ice cream tonight. We're going to go see Toy Story 4. Fun. We're going to live it up as one does with a four-year-old. I can't wait till Avery gets old enough to take to the movies. <laughs> it's really fun. It's mostly about the popcorn, but uh, um, uh-huh. the, it is fun to go to the movies. Does she sit through a whole movie? She does now, but that is a recent development. Mm, fun. I can't wait. Yeah. Yeah, that it is really fun to have those kinds of experiences. And now kids' movies are so much fun. It's it's actually not painful to sit through one. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I We haven't watched Toy Story 4 yet, but we have watched all of the prequels um, to get ready for it. So when it comes out on DVD, we'll see it yeah, then. Yeah, <laughs> at home is better with a, like a really small kid because then they yeah. can like run around. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Come back to it when we feel like it. Yeah, it's been it's been fun though. Yeah, so that's exciting. Yeah, I will report back next time we record. But before we get into the meat of it today, we want to welcome our newest patron, yay, Yay. um, Sarah Anderson. Um, And she's already been super active in our Facebook group just for our Patreon supporters. So we want to welcome her and thank her. And if you're looking for a way to support our show, we would love for you to consider becoming a patron. Um, Your monthly contribution just helps us cover the basic costs of the show, like hosting the audio files and keeping our website up to date and like maybe a a buck here or there for our time. (laughs) Um, And you get a little bonus, which is access to our patrons only Facebook group where we have conversations about other things going on in the world, but also what we're about to record about. Um, So we would love for you to join us. You can go to patreon.com slash kindreds to support us today. Yeah. So thanks, Sarah. We're excited to have you. We love, I've been loving the conversations in our uh, Facebook group. So yeah. Yeah. Really, really good insight and um, definitely enriching my, my life Mm -hmm. to have those folks sharing their thoughts. Yeah. So today we're just going to jump right in. We are going to be talking about abortion. And I thought I would start us off by sharing a story from my childhood about the first time that I ever heard about abortion. And the reason that I want to share this story is because I think it illustrates a lot of what we're going to be talking about today. Mm. So basically, I was around 12, and I vividly remember walking into my seventh grade homeroom class. It was first thing in the morning. A group of my friends were already there, and they were kind of sitting in a group talking and they were kind of fired up about something and I remember walking up and they had all been to their youth group the night before they were all Southern Baptist and so they had their Mm -hmm. Wednesday night youth group and sometimes I went with them because um you know they would invite me and but that night I had not gone and I guess the program had focused on abortion and how abortion was evil and wrong And they had watched a movie about babies being aborted. I guess they'd been told that our president at the time was Bill Clinton. I guess they'd been told that Bill Clinton supported abortion access. And I will never forget one of my friends said that Bill Clinton thinks it's okay for doctors to murder babies by sticking scissors up the mother and cutting their necks. Oh my gosh. I was 12 and I was like, what are you talking about? I, it was such a graphic thing to say. Yeah, it's like a horror movie scene. Yeah. And I, um, I was 
always kind of a skeptical kid. So when anything that extreme, you know, I, did, I never just bought it. <laughs> So I was like, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> that doesn't sound right. <laughs> and I went home and asked my mom, you know, what is abortion and what is she talking about? And, um, you know, my mom was able to set me straight about some things. But this was in 1997. Mm-hmm. And um, I was 12. And I think there's just a lot in this story for us to unpack. So today we're going to talk about the history of Christian opposition to abortion which is basically how did we get to a point where seventh graders are hearing Mm -hmm. anti-abortion propaganda and misinformation and politics at church youth group and talking Mm -hmm. about it at school? What is the state of abortion access today? Have religious people ever supported abortion? Why is abortion only one piece of the whole reproductive justice picture? And then, you know, a more personal note, Katie and I, why we are pro-choice Christians and how we talk about that and why is it important to talk about it now? So, yeah, let's do it. I was saying to you earlier that um, because of some work that I did this week, I've been targeted by some anti-choice websites. So why Mm. not just do another do another pro-choice thing this week? Yeah, we'll just we'll just keep it rolling. Pile it on. This is what we do. Yeah, on a more serious note, um, unlike you, I don't remember a lot of discussion or even a mention of abortion growing up in church, uh, in my United Methodist Church. It might have come up, but I don't remember it registering. So the first time that I was really seriously confronted about the issue was my senior year of college, which feels Mm. very late now. I was defending my honors thesis about motherhood. Mm -hmm. And I had argued that we should have a theological support for motherhood and Christianity that doesn't idealize or diminish its value. Mm -hmm. And I never talked about abortion in the, in the text. So one of my professors, who's still a good friend, confronted me about it and said, did you ever think about including your position on abortion? Because I could see someone who's politically pro-life kind of running and taking this and using it for their own benefit. And my reaction was like, Ooh, I don't want to deal with that in this particular body of work. Like, why do I have to talk about abortion? Mm. And later realized that that was a privilege that I had, Mm -hmm. that I was opting out of the conversation. And, um, and that was indeed a position that I'd taken was to not discuss it. Mm -hmm. And later on, I would realize that that wasn't quite in alignment with my values. It would take me a few more years to get to that point. But, um, yeah, it was, by not discussing it, I was I was making a statement in that particular piece. Mm-hmm. And the story that you shared about being twelve is so disturbing on mm-hmm. on lots of different levels. Um, for the church to be propagating lies and misinformation that's clearly politically motivated, yes, is just really unethical and really inappropriate. And um, for the church to be promoting this among kids who mm-hmm. likely haven't encountered abortion in any kind of personal way is really disgusting to me. Um, and I think it's very much connected to the purity culture movement that was happening yeah. around the same time. Yeah. Even though they're not exactly the same, they're definitely in alignment. And now that I think about it, in my purity classes at in, in um, youth group, they definitely brought someone from a crisis pregnancy center. Oh. And for those of you who don't know, crisis pregnancy centers are faith-based nonprofits that are specifically trying to keep women from accessing abortion and will often use deception to make them look like they're actually healthcare providers when they're not. And they're, mm-hmm. they're just there to try to discourage women from getting abortion care. So there was some of that happening um, with me, like sex ed was through that purity lens of someone who worked at a crisis pregnancy center. So there's definitely some connection there. But conflating Christianity with a particular political agenda is how the religious right has been so successful in destroying access to reproductive health care over the last 40 years. So I think that that's where we have to start. What you've already named, how did Christianity become synonymous with being anti-abortion? Yeah. So we have to talk about what was happening in the years pre-Roe versus Wade. And there's actually a longer history that I won't, we don't have time to get into about uh, the history of abortion in the U.S. It's much more complicated than we all think. But let's yes. go back to those f- few years, like six or seven years before Roe. There were lots of Protestant and Jewish clergy and laity and some 
Catholic lady, too, who were advocating for the legalization of abortion again. Abortion had been legal in the U.S. in the past. Mm-hmm. And um, Ashley and I both love to talk about the history of the Clergy Consultation Service on Abortion. Yes. That was an underground network of faith leaders in states across the country who worked with pregnant women who needed safe, affordable abortion. And the estimates were that they helped around 450,000 people get abortions in Mm -hmm. about six or seven years. Mm -hmm. So these faithful people would vet providers to make sure they were reputable, to make sure that they weren't going to take advantage of people Mm -hmm. who were really in desperate need of care. Um, And so I wouldn't call them crusaders necessarily, because they actually had a lot of support from their religious institutions at the time. They did. Um, So it was risky, yes, but not in the way that it is now to be a pro-choice clergy person. Because if you look at denominational statements from the 1970s, nearly all of them affirm access to abortion, even the Southern Baptist Church at the time. So that's the connection back to what you were describing And W.A. Criswall, who is a fundamentalist and who was president of the Southern Baptist Convention at the time, said about Roe versus Wade, quote, I have always felt that it was only after a child was born and had a life separate from its mother that it became an individual person. And it has Mm -hmm. always, therefore, seemed to me that what is best for the mother and for the future should be allowed. Mm -hmm. We're talking about a fundamentalist Christian saying these things. So what the heck happened? Right. <laughs> what happened? And there's a really important theory that I think is important to share because it's one that has always kind of helped me understand how we got this mythology that the religious right formed around Roe versus Wade. When I was at Yale Divinity School, I took a course on American Christianity with a professor named Randall Balmer. Hmm. Uh, He's a historian who studied evangelicalism. And his historical analysis is that the rise of the religious right was not about abortion, but about desegregation. Mm -hmm. Because Roe versus Wade occurred within a time of broadening of civil rights in general. Yes. So Bob Jones University, which was started by Jerry Falwell, was coming under scrutiny by the IRS because they were refusing to admit black students. Mm Mm-hmm. And they were not complying with the laws. And so they lost their tax-exempt status, I think, in 1971 or somewhere around there. Mm-hmm. And according to Balmer, that was actually the catalyzing issue for the rise of the religious right, not abortion. Because it wasn't until 1979, six years after Roe, that these Christian conservatives were taking on abortion as part of their platform in an effort to defeat Jimmy Carter and his reelection campaign. Mm-hmm. So big gap between Roe and when they started talking about abortion. So his analysis, and I think it's right on the money, was really about protecting white supremacy. Yep. And we have a lot of resources for this that we're going to link in our show notes. There are articles online. You know, this is maybe not the common, commonly understood um, history of the anti-abortion movement, I would say, in like, like popular media, the way we tell it. Um, the ties to white supremacy, but there is a lot of academic work and um, historical conversation about this, and we'll link to some resources for this in the show notes if it's something you're interested in exploring further. And I also recommend the documentary on Netflix, Reversing Row. It touches on mm. this, um, and it talks about that through line from um, the Bob Jones case because it was a Supreme Court case, if I remember right. I, I don't remember all of the details, but I remember there was a particular case that affected... You're probably right. We'll have to look it up. Yeah, I honestly we'll I don't know the up. history that well. Yeah. Um, and there are lots of, like you said, lots of historians who have worked specifically on this. So we will include mm-hmm. links in the show notes if you want to do some more digging. Yeah. And we're not going to get every nuance of the history completely accurate because like right we're not historians we're not historians (laughs) but it is important to know about the history in order to sort of frame and be able to articulate how we feel about abortion rights and reproductive freedom now Mm -hmm. Um, knowing your history is is important for me it's hard to separate out the political from the religious right now. Mm-hmm. And I understand why people conflate these issues so much. And I distinctly remember feeling very alienated from my faith during the 2008 presidential election cycle. Mm-hmm. Because I remember the, the media conversation was so strong 
even at church, it made it sound like if you're Christian, you're Republican. And if you're Republican, you're anti-abortion. It was Mm -hmm. so black and white. And I really couldn't see myself and my values reflected in the conversation at all. But I didn't really know how to articulate my thoughts around it. So what Mm -hmm. it, the result was that I honestly started to doubt whether or not I was even Christian because the media and, you know, I guess church is telling me that if you're Christian, you hold certain values. And if you don't, then, then what? And so, because I didn't vote or believe a certain way, I thought, well, maybe I'm just not Christian. And there's no way, you know, Barack Obama could be Christian, right? Right. Exactly. Exactly. And so... Even though he's the member of the United Church of Christ, which is Christian. Right. (laughs) Yes. So it's just, it's really... And all of those, you know, criticisms against Obama also stemmed from racism as well, you know, attacking his faith, attacking his values. Um, And so it's... I understand why it's hard for folks to articulate their values when there's so much um, misinformation and black and white approaches to the conversation. It doesn't leave a lot of room for nuance and it doesn't leave a lot of room for asking questions of yourself mm-hmm. and the the folks that you're, you know, go to church with. Um, mm-hmm. There's not a lot of room for that. So over the years, I've learned to reclaim you know, the values I hold as Christian values. I've learned to that it's okay to call myself a Christian. And it's important, honestly, to call, continue to call myself a Christian in this time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that that black and white approach to faith is incredibly toxic. And truly, it doesn't reflect the teachings of Jesus at all. So I've had a lot more experience over the years and practice in just talking about my values around things like reproductive rights and pregnancy and motherhood and abortion. And honestly, you have been really helpful for me. We've had so many conversations over the years about this where I didn't quite know how to put something or I didn't quite know how I felt about something. And, you know, I heard the way that you would frame it and found it really helpful. And so I feel like I've gotten a lot of my practice <laughs> with you, Katie. Mm, yeah. I mean, there's, there's people in our lives that are safe to talk about. And so that's mm. part of this is just having these conversations. But um, I've come to be able to articulate now what I believe. And what I believe is this. At the end of the day, I trust women as full, capable, discerning human beings. Yes. There's really no no more to say about that. I trust women to make the best decisions for themselves, their families, and their futures. And so to me, when we deny a person full decision-making capacity over their own body, it means that we're denying them their bodily autonomy. And someone who doesn't have full decision-making power over their own body is not a full citizen and does not have full human rights. Mm-hmm. So to me, it's very clear when you think about it, women who aren't allowed the agency to decide when and if to give birth are not complete citizens. And in the bigger picture of the history of opposition to abortion being rooted in, like you said earlier, it's being rooted in opposition to desegregation. It's rooted in white supremacy. You can see very clearly the through line. It's all about valuing and elevating the humanity of some over the humanity of others. And I just, at the end of the day, I do not know another person's story, their circumstance, their situation. I would never presume to tell another human being what to do about any decision in their lives. So why would the decision to have an abortion be any different? Absolutely. Yes. I mean, truly just, I trust folks. I trust, (laughs) I think that opposition to abortion often is rooted in a distrust of women like we've decided that 100 percent. yeah women can't be trusted to to make objective decisions or logical decisions that we're always driven by emotion or we're driven by fear or we're we're easily coerced we're easily manipulated and just trusting women like getting all of that noise out of the way and trusting women as full human beings for me that solves it like that that is enough justification. Right. And if part of being a follower of Jesus is believing that oppression in all forms is wrong Mm -hmm. and what he came to liberate us from, then starting with the oppression that happens within our own bodies seems like an integral first step. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. 
I thought I would talk a bit about my journey of how I got from that sort of complicit in the silence to where I am now, which is incredibly outspoken, because you've talked about a little bit about how you got there um, and what my origin story is. So I had this great opportunity in seminary to do pastoral care trainings provided by the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice, which I now lead as mm-hmm. the interim executive director. And at the time, I was just looking for opportunity outside of the classroom that would be a bit more tactile in terms of what are some skills I can cultivate to actually help people? Mm -hmm. Because my academic experience was so just intellectual and didn't seem very connected to Mm -hmm. what ministry on the ground would look like. And so this was one of the few offerings I discovered that would help me develop some skills. And um, in this case, it was about people either experiencing a reproductive loss or making decisions about a pregnancy that they felt like they couldn't carry to term. And so I did the trainings and I thought, well, I actually need to use these things or else I'm just going to lose everything I've learned. Mm -hmm. And there were a few students who had started an anonymous pastoral care hotline for people at the local abortion clinic across the street from campus. And this was a no cost, judgment free service. So I would take time, you know, rotating on to the call line. And um, I love talking with people. And what I found was, yeah, they had a lot of intense feelings about what was going on in their lives, but the root of those feelings was never the abortion that they'd had. It was Hmm. everything that had informed their decision, whether that was an economic situation or a difficult or abusive relationship or the children they were already struggling to care for. And that experience of talking to to women and, and practicing kind of how to be a compassionate presence really had an impact to me. And that was probably my first informal introduction to the idea of intersectionality with mm. regard to reproductive freedom and what all of the different scenarios were that could lead someone to needing to have an abortion in their lives. So even more intensely than doing the hotline, I was like, I got to go into an abortion clinic. I've never been in there. I don't even know what it's like. I've never seen an abortion. I've never had an abortion. Like, what is it like to actually be in a clinic? Mm-hmm. And so I got trained to be a volunteer and ended up working in the procedure room. So I would accompany a woman from the waiting room into the procedure room. I would hold her hand and be like the person that she could just connect with and then accompany her into the recovery room. And it was a really profound, sacred experience of being the person entrusted with such a vulnerable moment. Mm-hmm. And in addition to that, I was experiencing what it was like to walk through a clinic And to get harassed by protesters, because who assumed that I was a patient? Mm -hmm. And then to see on the contrast, the real ministry that was happening within the walls of the clinic among the staff and the physicians there. And I just thought, I've got to do something different. I've got to be a faith leader who doesn't look like the person screaming at the people from the sidewalk. I've got to be connecting these experiences I've had to be a faith leader advocating for reproductive freedom and dignity. So that has really informed my life's work. And honestly, I wish I could pick anything else to do. I mean, this work is so hard, (laughs) but I feel compelled to do it because it is so important. But like, honestly, I would rather go run a grocery store. Like I really, really would. I'm saying that in honesty because it is so hard. And I've been reminded of that. Because this week I got to do, um, I got to be part of an interfaith blessing of an abortion clinic in Austin, Texas. That is so awesome. It was really, really powerful. And my role, I mean, people kept thanking me for doing it. And I felt like I had very little to do with the actual coming together of the blessing. But I was able to be there and I was able to read aloud the patient journals that they have in the waiting room. And I was... I could barely get through it because just reading their words, they were so wise, so truthful, Mm -hmm. so self-aware, and so, um, gosh, like feeling the spirit of God in their midst as they were making these decisions. Mm -hmm. I just cried half the time, and I did not apologize. I said, these tears are sacred, too, because I felt like, how could anybody refute these truthful words? And testimonies to why these women were there, or these patients were there. I don't know if all of them identify as women. But, um, you know, I don't feel like my calling as a minister is to parse out when life begins or when personhood begins or whose abortions are justified and whose aren't. Um, But my calling is absolutely to be a compassionate presence Mm -hmm. alongside people making tough decisions about their lives and futures. And that includes the decision around whether or not to have an abortion. 
Mm-hmm. So I've been really thankful for that experience of reminding me why I do this work. And even though I've got a lot of hateful email right now, you know, I refuse to let that dictate how I'm going to do my work in the future. And it makes me even more furious that attacks on reproductive freedom have gotten so extreme over the last few months. Well, Mm -hmm. last few years, but in particular, the last few months. Oh, boy. (laughs) You have mentioned a couple times the phrases reproductive freedom, and I think you mentioned reproductive dignity. And Mm -hmm. I want to talk about, I want to lift that up a little bit because reproductive freedom sounds like pro-choice, but Mm -hmm. it's so much more than that. So I really Mm want to dig into the binary of pro-choice, pro-life, because I've come to learn that this binary is a really toxic way to frame the conversation because Mm -hmm. what it leads to is folks voting for a candidate simply because that candidate is anti-abortion. And that, right. I, I want to talk about Mississippi for a minute because Mississippi is this microcosm mm-hmm. of what happens when you vote for someone just because they're anti-abortion. So largely that is what drives electoral politics in Mississippi. You can get elected to our governorship, to state legislature, to Senate, you can get elected just on an anti-abortion platform right now. Right. It is such a strong issue. And so as a result, our legislature is overwhelmingly anti-abortion, and so is our governor and lieutenant governor. And and because of that, abortion is highly restricted here. It's still technically legal, but it is very difficult for most people to access. There's one clinic in the state. Um, It's a drive. It's a big state. So it's it's quite a drive for people um, who often will choose to go out of state. But it's also expensive. It's only open a few times a month. There are all kinds of trap laws that limit... um, that's why there's only one of one clinic in the state. I believe we've talked about trap laws before, but those are the restrictions on abortion providers that are really overly onerous that are the intentions are to to render a clinic unable to keep its doors open basically. That's right. They claim to say that they're making abortion safer, but really what they're doing is closing abortion clinic stores. So especially for poor people and people of color, mostly black women, abortion is very difficult to access. And our lawmakers have put these laws into place claiming to value life as their justification. Mm-hmm. But when you look at the bigger picture, when you step out, you see that their actions don't reflect these words. Mississippi has one of the highest rates of child poverty in the country. We have one of the highest rates of maternal mortality, especially mm-hmm. for black women in the country. Our lawmakers refuse every year. They refuse to fully fund our public education system. There are over 300,000 people in our state without health insurance. And there are parts of our state, the Delta area, which people have heard of, I'm sure. um, It's the poorest part of our state. In the Delta, there are places without basics like hospitals, broadband internet, health clinics, even clean water. When a government that claims to support children and families is letting the most vulnerable children and families in our state, you know, really just ignoring the the things that they need to thrive. All it says to me is that pro-life label is a total farce because being pro-life would actually entail supporting all life across the entire lifespan, not just fetal life. So let's reframe the conversation away from just abortion and talk about reproductive freedom, reproductive dignity, and especially reproductive justice. We have mentioned briefly the concept of reproductive justice before on the show, and we will likely devote an entire episode to it in the future. But it's worth just mentioning again here, reproductive justice is a framework that was developed by black women in the 1990s as a way to acknowledge the limitations of that pro-life, pro-choice debate. RJ, which is what a shorthand for reproductive justice, people call it RJ, it focuses on the needs of black women and women of color and incorporates a truly pro-life ethic. The, the basic tenets of RJ are this, the right to become a parent, 
the right not to parent and the right to parent the children you have in a safe and healthy environment. So when we talk about reproductive freedom and reproductive dignity, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about all of the things that give women and pregnant people the ability to make the decisions that are best for them and then actually thrive in the circumstances under which they live. Absolutely. Thanks for sharing about that. And I think it's important too when we talk about the political attacks on abortion there it's actually much broader Mm -hmm. than just attacks on abortion we're talking Mm -hmm. about you know attacks on reproductive health more Mm -hmm. generally too uh, especially in the name of quote-unquote religious freedom so that would be another great episode to do Mm -hmm. about the concept of religious freedom and how it's being used currently and our newest patron we mentioned at the top sarah anderson was reminding us of how Um, you know, the attack on abortion is deeply rooted in the control of our entire lives. Mm -hmm. So you all might remember the Hobby Lobby Supreme Court case. Yeah. From back in the day, this was about a company, not the people within it, but a company holding quote unquote religious beliefs that they could then use to dictate whether or not to provide particular health care to their employees, including contraceptive coverage. So the other thing about that is Sarah reminded us that contraceptives are are used for all kinds of medical conditions. It's not just about preventing pregnancy. So providing contraceptives, I would argue, is pro-life in that it allows people, one, to determine if, when, and how many children they can have, but also living without pain and suffering that are caused by conditions like ovarian cysts and endometriosis. So when we talk about like attacks on contraception, it's it's really an attack on our bodies more generally. And Mm -hmm. so I want to thank Sarah for reminding us of that tie-in as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, And going back to what you were describing with reproductive justice, when we look at reproductive freedom, as I talk about it along the full spectrum of a full life, that at times requires a whole host of services and Mm -hmm. social support. So like contraception, um, sometimes abortion, sometimes prenatal and maternity care, as you Mm -hmm. and I have both experienced, um, infertility treatment, uh, and then social and economic support for for choosing to parent, which hello is a long, long, long time. Yes. <laughs> so um, the reproductive justice framework reminds us of that time and time again. We cannot extrapolate abortion from the full spectrum of needs and life experiences, particularly for poor women and women of color. And honestly, the way you were talking about what's going on in Miss- Mississippi, I thought using the pro-life label is really insulting it to is. the actual like seriousness of talking about abortion as a moral issue that like yes. they could just use that as a political stunt or political um pawn and mm-hmm. never even like really touch the issue at all but just use that as a way to get votes is so insulting because abortion is a serious moral issue that we should be talking about mm-hmm. but using it just to get votes is just and then turning a, turning an, your gaze away from the people who are actually suffering and losing their lives in your state, it's just, it's really, really infuriating. Oh, deep breath. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> okay. And so where are we now in this particular moment with regard yes. to abortion access? And you've talked about some of this already with regard to Mississippi, but I might be repeating a little bit of that. But like you said, abortion is still technically legal for now. Um, But that doesn't mean it's available Mm -hmm. to everybody who needs it. Um, You mentioned Mississippi is one of six states with only one abortion clinic for the entire state. Mm -hmm. So there are lots of people living in rural communities and even some urban areas that don't have an abortion clinic within a hundred mile radius of where they live. So if you need an abortion and you are living paycheck to paycheck and you have to scrape the money together, not just for an abortion, which, by the way, isn't covered by federal health care plans like Medicaid. Mm-hmm. Then you've also got to scrape together money for transportation. You've got to scrape together money for child care because you probably already mm-hmm. have kids. Sometimes a hotel, if there's a mandatory waiting period and you've got to be around for three days. And then, of course, missing time off from work mm-hmm. that's uncompensated. So that's a lot. Yes. <laughs> just the finances alone are huge and a barrier for people. And then let's talk about these bans right now. So five states have passed the quote-unquote six-week bans. I will not refer to them as they're known in the vernacular because it's not accurate. Yes. But the six-week ban. So that's before pregnancy is even detected by most people. Right. Um, I could go on and on about how we count pregnancy weeks. It's not that accurate, y'all. Like, anyway. Uh, 
And of course, Alabama has passed the most restrictive ban of all outlawing abortion, even in cases of rape or incest, which frankly is against what a majority of Americans believe. Even people who identify as mostly anti-abortion, most people, including Catholics and evangelicals, support abortion in cases of rape, incest, and life of the the woman or of the pregnant person. When Mississippi passed its six-week ban, there was a Republican state legislator from kind of close to my area of the state who actually voted against it, even though she had previously voted for a, I think it was a 15-week ban that we passed last year that was already found unconstitutional. So the six-week ban was just a stunt. But she voted against the six-week ban because she said that she didn't, she started doing the research. She actually talked to doctors. (laughs) Imagine. And she said, you know, I can't in good conscience. This is way too restrictive. I I don't support abortion access, but I do think that, um, like, I guess generally she didn't support abortion access. She felt like it did need to be regulated. But even she felt like six weeks was too restrictive. And so I think when folks, like you were saying, even the majority of Americans and a lot of whom are Christian don't support these six week bans. Right. Yeah. I mean, the sinister side of me is like, well, politicians are just looking for the most salient law that they can take to the Supreme Court and hopefully win. Yes, but exactly. I will, I will take it where I can get it that maybe there is some, at least some conversation around like, how do we get something that makes more sense than these ridiculous yeah. bills yeah. or di- ridiculous bans? So beyond the bans, you've already talked about this. There are. How, Maybe hundreds, would you say? At least, if not hundreds, dozens. Oh, yeah. All kinds of restrictions on abortion in states across the country that have been happening for quite a long time. I mentioned mandatory waiting periods, um, unnecessary pelvic exams. That was one of the things that was happening in the Missouri clinic that was Mm -hmm. they were threatening to close. Uh, forcing providers to share misinformation with patients prior to their procedures, uh, regulations that you're talking about, the trap laws, forcing clinics to adhere to hospital standards in mm-hmm. order to provide care, parental notification laws for minors, and the list goes on and on and on. And to make things even worse, seven states have laws that are called trigger laws. So if yes. Roe is overturned, abortion becomes immediately illegal in those states. Yep, we've got one in Mississippi. Uh, of course you do. Mm-hmm. But I did want to share something a little bit more hopeful in case you all are feeling super down. Um, there are a number of states who are actively expanding reproductive rights, mm-hmm. including New York, Maine, Illinois, and Nevada. And they're doing things like expanding who can provide an abortion. So folks like nurses. Mm-hmm. Because an abortion procedure, especially in first trimester, is actually quite simple and doesn't need to ha- be done by a physician. Yeah. Sometimes it's just administering a pill. I mean, it's right. that simple. It's just giving someone a pill. So, yeah, it doesn't exactly. Need to be Why should a physician have to do that? Mm-hmm. Um, and these laws are also removing like old restrictions that had limited abortion access in previous administrations. Mm-hmm. So, y'all, it can be done. So, I think we've got to look at who is being proactive in terms of expanding reproductive rights and realizing. This can happen in our states, too, even in states that feel like they're very anti-abortion. I think it's good for us to see, actually, there are legislative tactics happening that are being successful in expanding reproductive health access. And that gives me just enough hope to get through the next day. Yes. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. I I need to take a deep breath after all of this. It's like, I know. know. Okay. It's, It's tough right now. But it's really tough. I think it's important to focus on action. Sometimes when we're feeling really overwhelmed with um, things that we can't control, it, let's focus on what maybe the small things we can control. So I'd like to talk about some things that people can do now. And one of the yes. things for me that I think is critical and why it's really why we wanted to do this episode, something that you can do is learn to articulate your viewpoint and practice saying it out loud to the people that are safe to do it with. That's, mm-hmm. I mean, that's basically what I've spent the last few years doing is just learning how to talk about it. Every time you talk about it, it gets easier. Practice saying the hard words. Say abortion. Maybe say mm-hmm. white supremacy. <laughs> you know, say the hard, <laughs> the hard words. Um, yep. If you're if you have been uncomfortable talking about these things in the past, you know, realizing that if you have any kind of privilege at all, you know, if you go to a, a progressive church that you feel like folks 
are, are supportive of abortion access, but you never hear it talked about at church, like maybe open up some conversations about, about why that is, why we're not talking about it in spaces where it is safe to do so. And maybe push folks a little bit. Um, if you're a person of faith, integrate that faith into how you talk about your support for abortion access or your support for reproductive freedom. Social media Mm -hmm. is fine. It's a, it's a great, you know, it can have a lot of wider impact, but in person is often much more powerful because you get that back and forth. You get the facial expressions, you get to really, um, relate to somebody. I have seen some very powerful testimony shared on social media, so I don't want to discount that, but, um, it, having these conversations, I think in person is, is a really important part of helping reduce the stigma against abortion. We haven't talked a whole lot about stigma on this episode, but that's a a big part of, of why we're in the, the situation we're in. Mm -hmm. So what would you say, Katie, that people can do? Well, I love what you shared because I think that's actually how change happens in terms of having intentional conversations with people one-on-one. That's how Mm -hmm. my views have changed when Mm -hmm. I think about being in college and being asked a really thoughtful question, which helped me start Mm -hmm. my journey of figuring this out. So I'm I'm with you. I think everybody should and and can do that. Some other things are donate to your local abortion fund. Um, These are the folks who are making sure that economics are not a barrier to people who need access to abortion. And a lot of times they'll fund things like some of the things I was describing, transportation, hotel, mm-hmm. um, meals, and stuff like that. So you can find yours at abortionfunds.org. And um, before you go form your own abortion fund, just look and see who's already doing the work. Right. And as someone who's been on the board of an abortion fund, one great thing you can do if you can afford it, even if it's just a few dollars a month, is to be a sustainer mm. so that they know they've got that money coming in. Because often what will happen is you'll get 20 calls in a week and you only have so much money to spend um, to help people. So you end up turning a lot of people away. But if a fund knows, hey, we know we've got this amount of money coming in, it just makes their planning a little bit easier and mm-hmm. they're able to help more people. Like I said, even if it's just a few dollars a month. So I would encourage you to to be a monthly giver. Uh, in addition, if you're figuring out how can I talk about these things, there are so many good books that you can mm-hmm. read. And just a few that I have personally loved are Trust Women by Rebecca Todd Peters. Reproductive Justice and Introduction by Loretta Ross, one of the founding mothers of reproductive justice, and she wrote it with Ricky Solinger. And then another really good one, if you want to look at the intersections of race and reproductive autonomy, is Killing the Black Body by Dorothy Roberts, who goes into the history of um, like slavery and how black women's bodies have always been monitored uh, and controlled by the state. Mm-hmm. So those are a few that I would recommend. Um, any last things you want to share? Yeah, I think, uh, the last thing I would suggest is, especially if you don't know anyone personally that's had an abortion, cause it's not something that we really feel safe to share. You know, um, if you've, if you've had one, it's not always something you talk about. Um, so if you, what I think is important to do is to read abortion stories told by the people who had them in their own words it's really mm-hmm. easy to mischaracterize and misconstrue the reasons why people seek out abortions. But um, when you read them in people's own words, it's really powerful. And you can really dig into the nuances of people's experiences because not all abortions are easy decisions. Not all abortions are the worst decisions of someone's life. Not right. all pregnancies are easy. Not all pregnancies are wanted. Um, but not all abortions are wanted either. You know, sometimes abortions are, right. are because there's something really wrong with a wanted pregnancy. So really every story is different and we can do a lot better to acknowledge that in our movement. Sometimes it's really, um, you know, the tendency is to say things like abortion on demand without apology. And that's great. You know, that's a great, uh, protest chant, <laughs> But, but what does that really mean? You know? And so really, really digging into the nuances of folks experiences. uh, One place that you can do this is there's a hashtag called shout your abortion and you can go to the website, shoutyourabortion.com slash writing, which will take you to the archives of abortion stories that were submitted anonymously by folks all, all over the place. And, um, there, some are short, some are long, but you can you can go through their archives and just read abortion stories from people in their own words. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a wonderful 
resource. And again, I think in terms of building our empathy and compassion, it it helps to learn Mm -hmm. other people's stories. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, thank you for having this very intense, but I hope useful nuanced conversation for folks. And we would encourage you if, if you're having trouble having this conversation with folks, maybe share the episode with them and see if it might foster some conversation. Yeah, absolutely. So Katie, I guess I'll kick us off with what we're reading and listening to. Yes. I think you're going to take us in a slightly different direction, which might be good. (laughs) Yeah. I saw what you had put for what you're listening to. And I was like, I, I think I'm just going to go, I'm just going to tell the truth. I've been doing some summer reading. Oh, me too. Yeah. So I can share a little bit about mine before I go into my yeah serious thing. I recently finished Little Fires Everywhere by Celeste Ng, which I loved that Oh, book. it was so good. I uh, heard that it was going to be made into a movie and I wanted to read it before the movie comes out. And I was looking for just a lighter summer reading option and this was perfect. Uh, the setting is this really fascinating real place it's a little suburb in ohio called shaker heights which is where the author grew up and i was reading an interview with her and she said she just always wanted to write about what it was like to live there it's a very um like white progressive planned development kind of enclave place and she had a very different experience of being a person of color living there and Mm -hmm. she um she just wanted to really (laughs) dig into that and the the main characters are all very interesting complicated women and teenage girls i loved the story um and the movie is going to i think i believe reese witherspoon and carrie washington are going to be the two female protagonists so i'm really looking forward to that it should be coming out in the next year or so so yeah i that's little fires everywhere love it have you read everything i never told you not yet no is it good I enjoyed both of them okay. a lot. Okay, that's next on my list then. I'm actually I'm reading City of Girls right now. Me too. I'm not that far into it. We'll talk about it on our next one. Oh my it's gosh. So good. Yeah, City of Girls by Elizabeth Gilbert. Yes. It's so much fun. It's completely transporting me into 1940s yes. New York. It is so like fun. Into the theater of 1940s New York. It's just, it's a delight. It's like indulgent. It but is delightful the voice that it's written in is just so so much fun I just am really I'm enjoying it a lot it's been good for both of these books have been really good for kind of getting out of the tragic news cycle and relaxing (laughs) and kind of getting getting your mind somewhere else especially before bed you know watch Mm -hmm. watch some stranger things get wound up read read some (laughs) city of girls (laughs) to clear your mind yeah exactly (laughs) so what are you listening to yeah. Well, how about I share something a little lighter? Well, no, okay. maybe I'll save it. I'll save it for the next episode. Okay. Um, because we're gonna do another episode. And I'll I'll include it. Uh, I thought I wanted to offer something that was kind of on brand with this particular episode, and I wanted to share about Repros Fight Back, and it's a weekly, biweekly podcast hosted by my friend Jenny Wetter. And every episode features leaders who are working on the front lines of the fight for sexual and reproductive health and rights. So some people that have been on there recently, uh, Yamani Hernandez, who's the executive director of the National Network of Abortion Funds, Amani Gandhi, who's a senior legal analyst with Rewire News and also host of the Boom Lawyered podcast. Mm. Um, and in a shameless self-promotion plug, I was also on a recent episode talking about faith and reproductive health and rights in my book. So it's a really great resource if you're looking to learn a little bit more about reproductive rights, not just in the U.S., but in a global context, too. Mm -hmm. So go check out Repro's Fight Back wherever you get your podcasts. You have been really making the podcast rounds lately. (laughs) Are you tired of it yet? No, I'm actually doing another one <laughs> next week. Um, no, they're fun. I mean, I enjoy having conversations with people about issues that are important. So yeah. mostly it's just being prepared for them ahead yep. of time. But no, it's it's a lot of fun. But of course, I always enjoy our recording the most. Yes, it is lots of fun. So who are our kindreds of the moment, Yes, actually? also lots of fun. I'm excited. Today's kindreds of the moment are the U.S. women's soccer team. Yay. Yes. They Amazing. just won their fourth World Cup. Can we just call it the U.S. soccer team? Right, right. Because let's just, you know, point the out. The U.S. soccer team. The men's soccer team has never won a World Cup. Just saying. 
Right. So the women's soccer team, in addition to just being all around badass soccer players, they're also fighting for equal pay with the men's team because the mm-hmm. men's team makes like three times what the women's team makes, even though they bring in less revenue and they have never won a World Cup and they lo- they win fewer games. So they uh, the women's team are are fighting for equal pay. And we support that wholeheartedly. And Absolutely. if you don't follow sports or soccer, which is okay, uh, we don't really either, but this is just a fun, I think, moment for, for women uh, in sports history. But we will link to a great article about team captain Megan Rapinoe. Mm-hmm. She's got such a great personality, and she does this thing after she scores. She strikes this power pose, and we'll link to an article about her power pose. She basically stands tall and um, confident with both of her arms stretched out as as wide as she can, just kind of looking up at the sky with a smile. It's amazing. She's taking up and claiming all the space on that soccer mm-hmm. field. It is really inspiring and just a really fun summer story to follow. So um, those are the, the U.S. women's soccer team and Megan Rapinoe are our kindreds of the moment. And the patriarchy don't like it. No, they don't love like them it. even more for how yes. dare you? How dare you strike a power pose? Meanwhile, football players are allowed to like do a little dance in the end zone, right? But, Somersaults you know. and dances. Yeah. How dare you not? Uh, how dare you refuse our invitation to the White House? <laughs> yeah, they're making lots of waves right now, and we are here for it. Yes, absolutely. Before we wrap, a quick reminder: please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And another reminder, if you want to support us on the show, you can become a patron on patreon.com slash kindreds to support us today. Yay. So next time we're going to take it lighter and do an episode about our favorite things. Kind of yes, like a la Oprah. Oprah or Gwyneth Paltrow, except our favorite things are not a bajillion dollars. And things we probably got from the local library or free online. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Hopefully a little more accessible and relatable. But if you have a favorite thing you'd like us to share or a kindred of the moment you'd like us to share, let us know. Join our uh, Patreon or uh, and find us on Facebook or um, send us an email. Yeah, send us an email at team at kindredspodcast.com and we'd be happy to highlight what you shared with us on the show. Yeah. All right, Katie. Well, I will talk to you then. Talk to you then. Thanks for listening. You can find us on our website, kindredspodcast.com. That's kindreds with an S. Or you can send us an email at team at kindredspodcast.com. You can also follow me, Katie, on Twitter at Katie Zay. That's Katie with an E-Y-Z-E-H. Please send us your thoughts, ideas, and questions. We'd love to hear from you. 